Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It looks a bit like a video game. A barrage of missiles are launched from mainland China and as they streak across the sky, crisscrossing with more waves of missiles coming in from the sea, you have to imagine the chaos and destruction they'd cause when they finally landed on the island of Taiwan. But it's not all just a simulation. In other footage, fighter jets take off and we're given a view from the cockpit as they fly high above the imagined conflict zone. The war isn't real, yet. But the threat certainly is. All of this footage was released earlier this month by the Chinese People's Liberation Army, as they carried out training exercises showing how they could blockade neighbouring Taiwan. Another warning from the superpower as they begin what they described as three days of combat readiness patrols in the Taiwan Strait. The exercises were just the latest in ongoing tensions in the South China Sea. They were rapidly followed by the Chinese President Xi Jinping announcing that the country's army is ready to fight. These drills may not have been as big as others, but China says it's ready to smash any form of Taiwanese independence. So, what is going on? Could China invade Taiwan? You could squeeze and then relax the pressure you were applying fairly easily at will. And in doing so, put pressure on Taiwan, but also test the international political reaction. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, trouble in the South China Sea. I'm Richard Lloyd Parry. I'm the Asia editor of The Times, based in Tokyo. Richard, last week, 
China was carrying out military exercises in, in both the air and sea around Taiwan. Just take us back to that. Just describe what was happening. Well, for three days, the People's Liberation Army, Navy and Air Force conducted really quite intense and menacing exercises in the Taiwan Strait, which divides the island of Taiwan from the mainland. These involved at least 11 warships of various kinds, including one of the Chinese aircraft carriers, and scores of military planes, including reconnaissance planes and fighter jets. And they carried out simulated attacks on Taiwanese targets. And they also quite explicitly announced that they were also practicing for a blockade of an encirclement of Taiwan to cut it off from the rest of the world. So images were put out by both sides, by the Chinese and the Taiwanese side. There were rather dramatic pictures filmed inside the cockpit of one of the Chinese fighters as the fighter pilot was rehearsing an attack. You could see him pressing his button as he would if he actually was launching missiles. Seeing these military exercises would have been very alarming for people. Do we have a sense of of why they've happened now? They happened now in direct response to something that happened just a few days earlier, which was the visit to the United States of Tsai Ing-wen, the Taiwanese president. And during that time, she met, among other important Americans, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the US House of Representatives and the third in line in the US political hierarchy. I'm optimistic that we will continue to find ways for the people of America and Taiwan to work together to promote economic freedom, democracy, peace, and stability in the region. Now, mainland China, the Beijing government, hates it when any Taiwanese senior politicians have contact with senior foreign politicians. They insist that Taiwan is not an independent country, that it's part of China, that its government is therefore illegitimate, and that any foreign politicians that meet Taiwanese leaders endorse them and thereby encourage fantasies and dreams of independence, which China wants at all costs to discourage. So this was a trip that was obviously going to upset Beijing. There was always going to be some kind of reaction. And these three days of exercises were the reaction that we saw. Is this the first time that they've responded with military exercises to to something like that? No, it's not. The military tension in the Taiwan Strait has always been there, but it's been increasing and intensifying in the last few years. And there was another crescendo of tension last summer when the former Speaker of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy's Democratic predecessor, Nancy Pelosi, also met with President Tsai. But not in the United States. Nancy Pelosi actually flew to Taiwan and met her in Taipei, where she spent a few hours. Now, that was taken by the 
Beijing government as even more of an insult and a provocation and a confrontation. And that visit by Nancy Pelosi was followed by several days of of what in some ways are even more intense exercises. Taiwan says 68 Chinese warplanes flew around the Taiwan Strait Friday. Chinese drones flew close to Japan, prompting Tokyo to scramble fighter jets. At that time in August last year, the People's Liberation Army Navy and, and Air Force actually fired missiles that flew over the island of Taiwan, we learned later. So that was very pointed and, and very menacing indeed. And how has Taiwan responded to the exercises that have just happened? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it sounds so alarming, but when you visit Taiwan and talk to Taiwanese politicians and leaders and so on, people really do take it in their stride. I mean, they've been living with this situation for a long time. It was 1949 when the defeated nationalist army fled to Taiwan and began to govern Taiwan. Ever since then, you know, 70, 80 years ago, they've been in this situation and the threat of invasion has been there. So when you go to Taipei and talk to people about it, there isn't, and I don't think even last weekend, it wasn't an atmosphere of panic. We're used to it by now. It's no big deal. It's been like this for years. China has just been like that, one man said. I think that people are nervous but not worried. People are not trembling in anticipation of war, but they know at the back of their minds that war is an ever-present possibility and that in the last few years it seems to have got closer than it was before. And Richard... Explain how this situation has come about. Why is it that China sees Taiwan as a part of its territory? And for the Taiwanese, that's something that they so strongly dispute. How has this sort of semi-independent state come to be? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of argument about that, and it depends who you ask. Taiwan is obviously closer to mainland China than to any other landmass. But over the centuries, I think it's fair to say, for quite a lot of its history... It had a, an existence and government and culture distinct in many ways from mainland China. Not completely distinct, but you know, it had periods of pretty much looking after itself. Now, in the mid-20th century, China was convulsed by this civil war between Mao Zedong's communists and the nationalist army of, of Chiang Kai-shek. The nationalists were eventually defeated in 1949, and they fled the mainland to Taiwan. Now, they had the advantage of bringing with them, for one thing, the National Art Collection, and they also brought with them the gold reserves, <laughs> which went a, a very long way to establishing, effectively, a new country. Now, there were, over the years, various attempts by the communist government of mainland China to, to take back Taiwan. They weren't successful. The United States helped to defend Taiwan in the early days. Now, in the early decades, it was really a very repressive dictatorship. It was a, an authoritarian, almost totalitarian government run by the nationalists. But it made a transition very successfully to becoming the prosperous and, and authentic democracy that it is today. 
And for those who haven't sort of followed the diplomatic wrangling in that part of the world, what, why is it so key to China now? What, why are they so desperate to be able to bring it into the rest of the state? In some ways, Taiwan is strategically important. It's an island quite close to, to Japan. You can see why in its project of establishing itself as a superpower, the Chinese strategists would want to control that particular bit of property. But I think it goes, goes much deeper than that. I mean, there is a deep sense in the hearts of many Chinese, and I think not only the state ideologues of the Chinese Communist Party, but among many ordinary people, that Taiwan is an intrinsic part of China and that it's uh, awfully wrong and an absurdity for it to exist as this independent government. That, I think, is at the root of it. The other thing about Taiwan is that, in some ways, it represents a reproach to the communist government of Beijing, which is a very authoritarian government. It's not a democracy. Those who speak out and oppose and challenge the authority of the Communist Party find themselves intimidated, locked up, and sometimes worse. One of the arguments that China sometimes makes is that a vast nation like China is not suitable for the kind of free-ranging, quarrelsome, turbulent, democratic polities that prevail, for example, in, in the US and the West. That would be too chaotic. Chinese people are not suited to that kind of democracy. Taiwan, however, although it's a you know relatively small population compared to the mainland, has made a great success of it. So in some ways, although they wouldn't admit this, Taiwan is a kind of standing reproach to the idea that Chinese people can't make a success of democracy. They obviously can and have in Taiwan. So, Richard, we've seen these military exercises happening, which will obviously have caused great alarm across the world, really. But in many ways, China is already making life very difficult for Taiwan. They're not quite at war, but there are various very aggressive strategies already in place. Tell us a bit about what's already happening. For the past couple of years, the, the Taiwan Strait has been the scene for very frequent Chinese military exercises, which are obviously intended to send a threatening message and which forced the, the much smaller Taiwanese armed forces to remain on constant alert, really. But apart from that, there are other kinds of attacks. Taiwanese businesses and, and institutions find themselves under pretty constant cyber attack, clearly from the mainland. That's been increasing in intensity month by month. And then there's just also the, the kind of constant pressure and, and humiliation that Taiwan is forced to face internationally because of its sort of non-status as a, as a nation state. China you know, routinely blocks it from full participation in international organizations, you know, the UN, the World Health Organization, things like that which just makes it harder for the government to, to function in the world. 
China says that the Central American nation of Nicaragua has made the right choice after it cut ties with Taiwan in favor of Beijing. Almost no one recognizes Taiwan as an independent country officially. Coming up, what would happen if China invaded Taiwan? That's in just a moment. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Richard, we've talked about the military exercises. If the real thing happened, if China decided to go into Taiwan tomorrow, how serious would that be? What could we expect to see? Taiwan's a, I suppose, a small to medium-sized island and its great defensive strength, but also its vulnerability, is the Taiwan Strait, which is about 100 miles wide. It's rather choppy, storm-prone, stretch of water, it's really only kind of calm enough to launch an armada across for certain months in in the warmer months, at least that's what experts say. So an invasion of Taiwan, were it to be carried out, would be quite different from, for example, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine is a country with long, long land borders, across which land forces can move unimpeded by geographical obstacles. Taiwan, on the other hand, has this wide and rather difficult stretch of water separating it from the mainland. So in order to physically take over Taiwan, if it chose to, China would need to launch an amphibious invasion, which would be a great and very risky undertaking. The other difference with Ukraine, though, is that if they did successfully accomplish that and establish themselves in Taiwan, then Taiwan would be very difficult to resupply. You can't drop in tanks on parachutes, for example. So Taiwan's status as as a rather isolated island is key to understanding its strengths and vulnerability. Now, the point about an island is that you can, if you expend enough effort, block it off without fully invading it. You can patrol the the airspace, you can dispatch your naval forces in the sea around it and make it very difficult, if not impossible, for civilian shipping, merchant shipping, but also other military powers to come in and reach that island. You'd just be cutting it off from the world. That's the idea. So at some point, if they wanted to occupy it, they would need to send soldiers over on ships take the place like that. But that would be a very risky thing to do. And it would also be very obvious. You would need to assemble 
your amphibious invasion fleet. You could only do that in certain ports quite close to Taiwan on the Chinese south coast. And those preparations would be visible and obvious to spy satellites operated by the United States, among others. You could see that happening. You'd have warning for for weeks, if not months, in advance. But that's something you could do a bit more easily. And what might be the first step would be some kind of blockade. It needn't be a complete blockade. It might be that the Chinese would, for example, announce that they were carrying out military exercises like the ones we saw, and that these would take a week. And during that period, airspace and shipping lanes were going to be closed. Now, people would would not like that. They would complain, but after a week, it'd be over. And then perhaps next time you would do it for two weeks or a month, and it could be continued. You could squeeze and then relax the pressure you were applying at will. And in doing so, put pressure on Taiwan, but also test the international political reaction and get a sense of how far the rest of the world Taiwan supporters might be willing to go to defend it. What would you expect to see there? Do you, do you think if Taiwan was under threat, would America get involved? Would we? Taiwan is not a treaty ally of any of the big Western powers. So Japan and South Korea, for example, are formal allies of the United States under the treaties agreed to those countries. The United States is bound under international law to defend those countries against any attack. Now, it hasn't made anything like that commitment to Taiwan, but it's been made clear and increasingly so under President Joe Biden that the United States does consider Taiwan a friend. And in the past, the policy that's been followed is one referred to as strategic ambiguity. We agree with what we signed on to a long time ago, and that there's a one-China policy, and Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We are not moving, we're not encouraging their being independent. That's their decision. So when asked if the U.S. would defend Taiwan against Chinese attack and invasion, the standard answer has been to say, well, we're not saying. We don't answer that question. And the reason for that ambiguity is twofold. One is to give the Chinese something to think about, something to wonder about, but without doing something that would encourage independence-minded Taiwanese to make explicit their demands for independence. So China has made clear that if Taiwan ever did formally declare independence, which it has never done, that that would prompt an invasion. And I think you know we can believe that. And what would that mean, declaring formal independence? It would simply be the, the form of words. I mean, at the moment, Taiwan is de facto an independent state. It has its own you know, armed forces. It runs its own affairs, completely independent of the, of the mainland. But it has never formally declared itself independent. If it were ever to make that declaration, then I think that's when the bombs would start falling fairly soon and the invasion force would be assembled. But it's always stopped short of that because the status quo is working pretty well. However, strategic ambiguity has become 
less ambiguous under Joe Biden. He's been asked a number of times whether the United States would send its forces to defend Taiwan. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's a commitment we made. Rather oddly, those statements are always then kind of rowed back in some ways by the State Department. But Joe Biden clearly knows what he's doing and has decided to send a signal to China that the US would fight for Taiwan. And Richard, where you are in Tokyo, I mean, is there a a ripple from each of these military exercises? What's the sort of reaction in the region? How do they view China's actions? Well, life goes on. People are not obviously biting their nails on the Tokyo subway in the morning, at least as far as I can see. But there's also an increasing feeling among Japan's leaders that an invasion of Taiwan would, would very quickly become an emergency for Japan because the American troops that would go to Taiwan's defense, if such a defense were made, are based in Japan. They're in bases in the islands of Okinawa. And also that there's a a suspicion that one of the things China might do in an invasion of Taiwan is occupy maritime territory and possibly seize Japanese islands in the southeast in order to consolidate the eastern flank, the maritime flank of of Taiwan, and to try and prevent Americans or others coming in to to Taiwan's help. Mm. And with increasing um, speed, Japan is relocating forces and putting new units into those rather remote, small southeastern islands that are the closest part of Japan to Taiwan. And Richard, what about Taiwan? I mean, they they may seem to be unfazed by the recent military exercises, but if there was a real invasion, would they be ready to fight? One of the assumptions that Vladimir Putin seems to have made is that Ukrainians would not really put up much of a fight, that military resistance would crumble, but also that civilian resistance and political resistance wouldn't be very strong either, that the Ukrainians would give up. Now, of course, quite the opposite has happened. So there's a question that Taiwanese, and I was there a few months ago talking about this, Taiwanese are also asking themselves the question, well, would we have that kind of resilience? Because when you go to Taiwan, it's a wonderful place, uh, a fascinating place, and people there are great. Uh, And they are extremely sophisticated. They have a very very high standards of education. It's culturally a very rich place, very creative. But they're not obviously tough and hard-bitten. And people there you know, worry that, I suppose in a way that Taiwanese, and particularly young Taiwanese, have kind of had it rather easy in a way and are becoming a bit soft and not ready for the horrible situation they could you know, imaginably face. When I was there, a very rich man, a billionaire, provided a big sum of money. And the idea is it's to be used for training ordinary Taiwanese in civil defense. And I went to a class one evening where ordinary Taiwanese people, you know, people working in offices and academics and so on, were standing around first aid dummies 
being drilled in CPR, in how to dress bullet wounds and shrapnel wounds and these kind of things that you might face if your country was under invasion. We've been doing this since 2020. And the reason we're doing this uh, is that we're trying to fill a gap in our, in Taiwan's overall resilience. We are facing our most, I'd say our biggest national security challenge, right, um, ever. And it requires the whole society to come together. That's one of the people that Richard spoke to, a former special forces soldier called Enoch Wu, who was leading the training session. We're here, you know, hitting 8 p.m. on a Monday night. And we're next to, we have a full room of citizens, men and women, you know, across all ages here to learn and to train and to see how they can, to, to roll up their sleeves and be part of the solution. So The term that's used is resilience, civilian and, and social resilience. How resilient would Taiwan be? Would people, as they might have to, fight on the beaches and fight on the landing grounds and fight in the towns and the villages and the mountains? Or would they at some point capitulate? I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that question, but it's being asked with some urgency now in Taiwan itself. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Asia editor for The Times, Richard Lloyd Parry. If you're a subscriber, you can read more about the ongoing tensions in the region at thetimes.co.uk. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others to find us. Thanks again for listening. See you tomorrow. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.